So we have come to the last message on the book of James. Can you believe that? It's been maybe a couple of months or so. So we are, we are blessed and glad that we have gone through the book of James as a, as a congregation. So this last passage of James brings us to James 5, 19, and 20, the last two verses in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, please let's turn there. James 5, 19 and 20. And if you can, please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> James 5, 19 and 20 reads, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as your message goes out this morning, that you may be the one speaking, that you may grant our minds understanding, that you may grant our hearts uh, to repent in the areas that we may be wandering away from the truth, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave this morning with a, uh, a reminder of your refreshing grace and love and mercy towards us that allows us to persevere in the faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Okay, so James, as a pastor of the congregation there in Jerusalem, as we know from, from Scripture and, and history, he has been known to be very firm in the messages, in the exhortations, in the warnings, in the rebukes that he has given thus far to his audience. And if we were to summarize, maybe in, in a line or in a phrase, the, the theme of, of the messages of James, which are packed into very compact, practical applications, he's basically issuing a general warning to not be deceived by living a fake Christian life. If we could summarize it that way. Now, the last two verses here in the book of James, they close with a final warning and yet a final encouragement. A final warning and a final encouragement. Let's keep that in mind. So, we know that it is not enough, as we have learned from the book of James, that a profession of faith, a correct theological belief, and an assertion of that belief is not enough in order for us to be known as true professing Christians. But we have learned that that profession of faith needs to be accompanied by a lifestyle, by a certain pattern of how you live, of a reputation that one establishes as a follower of Christ. So, as the saying goes, talk is cheap, right? Anybody can say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, He's my Savior. Um, somebody could even say that and, and have a completely under, a different understanding of what that really means. They're talking about a different Jesus, or they may be talking about the correct Jesus, but when you look at their life, 
it doesn't really match what the fruit of a believer should be. So here, James is issuing the warning about, as we just read in the passage, about those that would wander away from the truth. And then he calls, sort of like, not only an encouragement, but a commandment, as we will see here in a few minutes, to reach out to those lost sheep that have gone astray and bring them back into the fold. So we will be looking at that. And another thought that comes to mind is also that James is seen here as not only the stern and firm preacher and pastor that we've seen, but we also see that he really cares for his sheep because he's concerned about those that would go away, those that would stray away from the faith and may be in danger of not coming back. So that has several implications of why, why would somebody wander away? What does that mean? Like, weren't they saved? Right? So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit here in this message. <clears throat> so in the message that <clears throat> Pastor Kevin gave last week, he talked about prayer <clears throat> and about how our dependence on God in the local church is shown by us turning to prayer. Some of the specific um, instances in which that would happen is if there's a physical need, if there's physical illness, then yes, he says pray. That's, it's, it's very biblical. The Bible is filled with instances in which uh, the people who are sick or weak are prayed for. And this is in a physical sense. Even Paul the Apostle himself was one who explicitly asked Jesus to heal him from the thorn in the flesh, which we don't know exactly what that was. And although Jesus told him that his grace was enough for him, it didn't stop Paul from praying that. So we should pray for physical illness. Also, for emotional or spiritual battles that we may be having. It came to mind as I was studying this passage that Jesus himself, in what was perhaps the most distressing moments of his life as the incarnate flesh of divinity, as God in the flesh when he came to this earth, <clears throat> he was distressed when he prayed to the Father if, he would, if it was possible to take that cup that he was going to take away from him, if that judgment could be maybe done in another way. But yet, he said, not, your, not my will, but your will. So he submitted to the Father's will. Nevertheless, the point being that Jesus in that instance, he prayed when he was distressed, when he was emotionally um, just weak, if you will. Afraid in the human nature that he had. So we can pray for those things. And then James now turns into... Warning about those who wander away from the truth. So, as I always have the custom of doing, what does that mean? Because we can start, we can start talking about, okay, well, so and so wandered away from the faith. What does that mean? So, to walk away, to wander away, means to walk or move in a leisurely, casual, or aimless way. Now, this this can be done consciously in outright rebellion 
like I know what I'm doing, I'm going to walk away. Or it can be gradual, sliding, drifting, so that when you least expect it, you look back and you're like, what the heck, Where, what happened? Where did I go? This brought to mind an example of drifting away when I first moved to California. I was just a 10-year-old child. And I went to the beach for the first time. I think I, some of you may have heard this example from me in the past. But it's, it's a very vivid example. I was not sure if I wanted to go into to the water. And finally, I kind of tested it out and I liked it. You know, So I stayed there a while. And I stayed there for maybe... 30 to 40 minutes enjoying the, the waves and the beach. And what I didn't realize is that when I, I thought, you know what, it's maybe time to go back. I came out of the water. It looked similar, but my family wasn't there. So I like, how could this happen? I'm, I've been here the whole time. Little did I know that as you spend time in the water with the waves and the way the water drifts, you kind of drift with it. So that if you're not paying attention, by the time you realize it, you're not where you're intended to be. And it seems as, as if you're lost, you've drifted away. So that's what happened to me. So in that same manner, we can drift away or slip away from the truth without really realizing it. That's one way in which we can be alert, in which we should take inventory of our spiritual walk. To ask ourselves, am I drifting away? So when discussing wandering, wandering away, one very important aspect that we are presupposing here, because James here is talking away, he's talking about wandering away from the truth. That means that there is a right path. There is a correct way to follow God. And to seek after God. And there is a potential to go wrong. And end up in the, in the wrong road. End up somewhere completely different than you thought you would be. At the end of your life perhaps when you realize that you, you went astray and it, it would be too late. So in order to expand more in this concept let's dig into the text. So verse 19 says, the way James addresses the congregation, he says, my brothers. James is speaking to the congregation, so he's about to issue a warning about straying away from the faith. Nevertheless, he's addressing it to the brothers and sisters in the church. That means the ones that are outside, they're already lost. We're not talking about them right in this instance. We're talking about the people in the church. And it is note, noteworthy to realize that not only James, but others, other writers of the New Testament, they make a gracious call to the congregations when they speak to them, when they address them at the various local churches, and they address them as brothers, as brethren, as brothers in the faith. So in a sense, they're giving them the benefit of the doubt. The people there in the congregations have made a statement of faith, a profession of faith, and generally speaking, they refer to them as brothers and sisters. But, we need to realize that although they address them as brothers and brethren and, and, and brothers and sisters, 
they never assume that everyone in the audience, although they are in the context of a church, are all saved. How can we know that? Because we can see the constant warnings throughout Scripture that are always asking us to be alert, to be watchful, to not wander away from the truth. A couple of examples. James himself, here in, in the book of James, in chapter 2, tells us that a profession of faith that has nothing to show along with it as far as your, the way you live your life, as, as far as your works go. If you have nothing to show for it, then that faith is not genuine. And that faith cannot save you because it's false faith. Paul, on the other hand, also tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And again, there Paul is addressing Christians. And then none other than our Lord Jesus in Matthew 7 has this very, very important warning speaking to people that's, that have said at one point, Lord, Lord. He said, all you people that call me Lord, Lord, and didn't we profess your name? Didn't we do great miracles in your name? Jesus said, on that day, you're going to tell me that, and I'm going to tell you, get away from me, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So, in like manner here, the very stringent and important and crucial warning that James is going to issue is to the church, to the people that are gathered in the church. So when we approach this topic, it is of utter importance that we make some self-reflection of where we are with our walk with Jesus. Whether we are by His grace, persevering in the faith by His sight, even if we fall over and over, but we get up, but we have accountability with our brothers and sisters, and we are able to be brought back into the fold. And hopefully we are, in one way or another, in the process of doing that each time as we persevere through the path of, of sanctification in our Christian walk, of becoming more and more like Jesus each day. So this is addressed to us. Now, the next, ver the next part there in that verse says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth... So we need to know that this proposition, this if, is to be asked first of ourselves. Because he says, if any of you. So firstly, we must not think about, what about my kids? What about my spouse? What about my neighbor? What about brother or sister so-and-so? No, us. What about us? How we're doing? And now the call does come more generally corporately to the body of Christ. To be the instrument to bring those back that have wandered away, like wandering sheep. However, first it is addressed to us as individuals. The example that comes to mind here, if any of you have traveled by airplane, and the flight attendant will get up and give this spiel about safety, <clears throat> they say that if, in case of an emergency, if there's loss of pressure, 
we need oxygen, so an oxygen mask will, will be deployed. And they said if you're traveling with smaller kids or those that need to be cared for, they say first put on your own oxygen mask before you help others. So in spiritual matters, we always need to remember that we need to put on our oxygen mask, spiritually speaking, first, before we turn to our brothers and sisters and try to help them. And just as a note, when the, when the people give this kind of warning in an airplane about be careful with safety, this and that, it, it goes pretty much ignored by most people. Only to find out that in the case of a real emergency, everybody's freaking out. Nobody knows what to do. Why? Because they never thought that the warning of safety and of what should be done should have been taken heed to, right? In a similar way, when addressing spiritual matters and being informed of how to respond to somebody that has wandered from the truth, it's sort of like a spiritual emergency, right? Like something needs to be done. So what are you to do? Well, we need to pay attention to the Word of God in order for us to know. So remember, put on first your safety mask in order to help others. So the next part of this verse, James 5.19 says, if anyone of you wanders away from the truth, wanders away from the truth, we said we would come back to this, and here it is. What does this mean? Wanders away from the truth. There is a whole worldview being implied in this particular text. Why? Because in our days, this is actually controversial. To say that there actually is truth. I'm not talking about a best option a better decision than the other, a good opinion. No, I'm talking about truth. There is truth. What this means, therefore, is that there is falsehood. This means that there is good and there is evil. That two opposing views on a moral matter are not morally equivalent. This truth means that ultimately... It refers to the truth that became flesh, to Jesus Christ Himself. The biblical worldview of truth says that what we believe, what Jesus has said, is true. And we could come to Him, we do so to be forgiven, we do so to be transformed, we do so in order to come and worship Him because of who He is, because of what He has done. Let's remember that Jesus Himself said in John 14, He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through Me. Now, that is a pretty arrogant statement if I don't know who Jesus is. Like, who does this guy think He is? I am the truth. Even the people of His time said, who does this guy think he is? So either Jesus was out to lunch, lying, or indeed he is the truth. And 
all the claims that he made, he said, tear this temple down, speaking about his body, and in three days I will raise it up. One of the soldiers that heard that after the resurrection happened, he said, actually, he did say that. Proving that everything he said is true. And that's why Jesus has is the one who the only one who has the right to say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. To contrast that with a couple of other uh, religious figures in history who were always pointing to somebody else, right? Even the righteous prophets of the Old Testament, they're pointing to the one to come. When Jesus comes into the scene, in one instance when he went to the synagogue to teach and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads a prophecy from the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, this scripture today is fulfilled before your very eyes. And it says that the people marveled, who is this guy? So Jesus didn't point to anyone else. He pointed to himself. Claiming that he is the truth. He's the one, the only one who has the ultimate truth. So, this means that there is no such thing as, well, this is my truth. It works for me. And something that you're doing, you know, that's cool. That works for you. That doesn't work when addressing spiritual matters. As much as our culture would like us to believe that. And Jesus also said that the path that leads to eternal life is what? He said it's narrow. And there is few who find it. Many times in our human understanding and in us wanting to be gracious, especially to our close ones, to our family, it seems that that narrow way of salvation that Jesus spoke to, we kind of want to stretch it out a little bit to kind of fit our loved ones in there. It's like, well, what they're doing is really not that bad. Or they said they believed once upon a time, so they, they could be okay. And the warnings that James is issuing us says, no, don't be deceived. Such person, if they did make a profession of faith, has, has actually wandered away. So, the path is narrow. And what we can conclude from this, that if somebody wanders away from the truth, that is something very specific that he's referring to. So, there is no such thing as, yeah, let's do Christianity and kind of anything goes. Let's pick and choose what we like from the scriptures and we'll, we'll kind of go that way. James says, no, there is truth. Jesus is it. And if you disagree with him, I'm a pastor, I love you, James says, but you have wandered away. And we must reach, we must reach out to you in love. So, wandering away from the truth. People who walk away from the faith. We can liken this to somebody having a membership at the gym and renouncing it. Or, like is humorously called nowadays, the fat tax. You sign up for a gym, but you never go. You say, oh no, I'll go next month. Oh, okay, for sure, our New Year's resolution. I am going to go now. But you just keep paying it but you never go. So, in that sense, you've wandered away. You're, you're not it. 
you're not a member of the gym anymore. You're just paying, but you're, you're not a member. Or a golf club. You could go and you say, you know what, okay, I'm done. I, I don't want to pay my fees anymore. I'm done. You could renounce from it. Or simply to walk away from any particular community or, or group that you had been a part of, socially speaking. And then all of a sudden you kind of walk away, never to be heard from again. That's what the implication of walking away from the truth is. You just leave. So why is it that people wander away? Why do people wander away from the truth, from the faith, from their first love, from Jesus? Why is it that they go away? I'd like to suggest there could be several categories, but I think they kind of fall into three different ones, and I'll touch on each of those here quickly. The first one could be a drift in theological convictions. What does this mean? Someone who has learned the truth, who Jesus is, God in flesh, He died for my sin, there's no other way for me to be forgiven but to submit myself to Him and live in a Christian community. No, I had a serious change of mind. I'm actually not sure if Jesus is who He claimed He was. I'm not sure if the accounts of the Bible are credible. Not sure if Jesus is the only way to salvation. No, what about all these other options? Or maybe very visible in some of the churches nowadays. Maybe we shouldn't focus too much on Jesus and what he did and telling people that they need a savior. And that we are all sinners in need of a Savior and to be forgiven. But let's put that to the side and let's focus on trying to reduce social injustice. Let that be our main focus. And on and on and on. It could also be a drift in moral lifestyle. What would that look like? I know what the Bible says. For instance, I know that adultery is a sin, but I've fallen in love with this other woman, and I'm done. I'm leaving. I know what you guys are going to tell me, but I don't want to hear any of it. So I'm out, and see you guys hopefully never. See ya. It is the case of, unfortunately, many pastors even in our recent history, that have a variation of that story. Or, somebody could say, the lifestyle that I am now living, I know that it's condemned in Scripture. And, I'm going to choose my lifestyle over obedience. I cannot accept what the Bible says. Or, even the contrary of that, the lifestyle that I'm living and engaging in is actually not condemned in Scripture. That's not what the Bible meant when it said that. Let's contextualize that. So I'm totally fine. I am not living in sin. So let me leave here. Let me go to this other church that is on the same page as I am in, in relation to the lifestyle that I want to live. So here a person wants no correction. They want no repentance. Rather they want to choose 
a particular religious group that will fit their lifestyle. So it turns to be more like a social club. The third example of why somebody might leave the church, unfortunately, is because they were hurt by the church. Or by someone in the church, or even by someone in leadership at the church. This could come at a time when a faithful congregant is weak, but vulnerable. Or maybe not just them, but a family. And they're mistreated or neglected by the church. This is very painful to see. Why? Because as the body of Christ, that's like taking a knife and stabbing your own body. This is, this is very hurtful. Of people who would wander away because they're hurt. Unfortunately, in these three cases, whether it's a change in theological convictions a drift in moral lifestyle for someone that has been hurt by the church. Unfortunately, I've been either in close proximity or actually known people who have wandered away for these three reasons. What I have noticed is that in the, in the majority of the cases, ultimately, the reason why someone strays away from the faith is because they will prefer a lifestyle of sin, of non-accountability, of rebellion, of accommodating to what the best church or beliefs will suit them in order to lead. The book of James, which we're, we're finishing today, talks about that. In chapter 1, verse 14, it says that each person is tempted and lured by their own lustful desires and are led away. So ultimately, when wandering away from the truth, we can have all sorts of excuses. But at the end of the day, whatever those reasons or excuses are, is because I want to sin. I want to be in rebellion at the end of the day, and that's why I'm going to walk away. So I'll put two notes to that statement. One... There's times that the church has hurt someone. And that could be a different case in which restoration is needed in order to heal those that have been hurt. And it is not that the person who is wandering away is doing it deliberately because they intended to walk away in the first place. So in that case, it wasn't a fault of their own that they were hurt. But nevertheless, in the long run, they have no excuse not to come back to the church. And the second note would be, when we talk about wandering from the faith, what we don't mean is that someone is attending a congregation that is Bible's, Bible-believing church, their gospel center, they love Jesus, but there is maybe a difference of opinion in a secondary issue that is not relating to the essentials of the Christian faith such as the divinity of Christ, we are saved by grace, through faith alone, not by works, etc. But that they, you know, they come to the conclusion that, you know what, I'm going to attend this other church, 
and they're also a Bible-believing church, a healthy church. They become plugged in, and they have a good fellowship and community at that church. Praise God. So we're not talking about that, just to be clear. <clears throat> so moving on to the next portion of that verse, 19. It says, someone has wandered away, and someone brings him back. So let me ask this. How does God work? As we see throughout Scripture, as we've seen throughout history, as we've seen even in our lifetime, how does God work in our lives? It could be miraculously. Through a miracle. However, generally speaking, the majority of the time, God uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary purposes. In other words, He uses us. He uses the people in the church in order to accomplish His purposes. As one of the greatest examples in Scripture, Romans 10, what does it say? Talking about salvation. It says, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's 10.13. And then it goes on to verse 14. says, How, how should then shall they call on him whom they have not believed. And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That means that God will use people to speak his word in order for, or for others to hear it and have faith and believe and be saved. So the one who does the saving is God. But He uses His church. He uses His people in order to accomplish that means. So because of that, we can see that throughout history, God has equipped and used His church to accomplish His very purposes. So now back to the concept of wandering away from the truth and being in danger of being lost spiritually forever. We must have that spiritual instinct to be used, be used as members of the body of Christ to help save others. This reminded me <clears throat> a couple of occasions that I've seen uh, videos on YouTube of animals that are helping each other to survive. Whether it was a dog one time trying to help a fish that was floundering outside the water. You can see the dog trying to push the fish back into the water with his nose. Pretty noble to, to, to see that instead of, I mean, you could have ate it, right? Or another instance in which a, a street smart dog is trying to prevent at least smart dog to go into traffic in a busy street. And then kind of ends up helping them navigate through traffic. So in, that, in those instances, we could see that the, in the animal kingdom, there's this intuitive instinct of survival, either for self-preservation, or in this case, is that they want to help out the other, their fellow animal. In like manner, I like to suggest that as part of the body of Christ, as part of His sheep that we are, our shepherd commands us to look out for the sheep family, for the family of God. That's the primary means that He uses 
to reach out to them, to plead with them, to serve them, to love them, to pray for them with the ultimate purpose of bringing them back into the fold of God. And at times, this doesn't necessarily mean to come back to a specific congregation, to a specific church. Nevertheless, to come back to a Christian center community, to a healthy church, for them to be restored and for them also not to forsake the commandment to congregate in the church. So God uses His people to bring those sheep back. Verse 20 says, Let him know, speaking about the one that reached out and brought that person back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this means that the obedience, the care, and the love of a believer towards another believer will be the means that God uses to bring a wandering sheep back into the fold. But now we must ask, how can that be? The outcome of this person being brought to the sheepfold will result in the saving of their soul? Like, weren't they saved? Like, what happened? Wasn't this person a faithful congregant and believer in Jesus? How is it that James is warning that they'll go astray with the implication that they will be lost eternally if they don't come back? Well, I would say it depends. We don't know. What we do know is that we must persevere. The scripture says, Him who perseveres to the end shall be saved. This is similar to the call of James to assure that the way we live, the works that our life shows, is a testament, it is a proof, it is a confirmation of our faith. Not that we try to do good things in order to gain faith, or in order to gain favor, but that our lifestyle will be a confirmation to our faith. And that faith does save you. So if you are saved, your life will show it. And your cumulative lifestyle, your life choices, and your character will show that you are saved. So, in the subject of persevering, in like manner, is someone who wanders away from the faith saved? Well, I would say if they persevere to the end, if they come back, yes. If someone who wanders is saved and is part of God's elect, and they've gone on a rampant, backslidden trip, he or she will come back if they're, if they're part of the elect of God. And the means God will use is a brother or sister to reach out to them and bring them back. Because it's somebody in the body of Christ. Now, if somebody goes away from the truth, away from the faith, whether at first consciously or unconsciously, but at one point they realize that they strayed and they made up their mind that they don't want to come back and they, or they're okay with dying in their sin, then that means that we're never saved. 
1 John 2.19 tells us that they went out from us, speaking about people who go away from the faith, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So if they left and never come back, that means they were never saved. So, what should our hope and trust be in, in order to persevere? We could also touch upon the, elaborate more on eternal security of how it is that a believer is safe in Jesus. And that's kind of the, the next portion here as we're going to wrap it up. Nevertheless, just a note on remembering that the one that saves, the one that forgives the sins is Jesus, is God Himself. But the means He will use is ordinary means. It's us. So then, in order to persevere, in order to run the race with endurance, what shall we do? The good news is that we have the assurance and can rest in the faithfulness of Jesus, in the perfect one. Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, Philippians 2.12 and 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And a lot of times we hear just that passage. Work out your own salvation. Oh, let me go work. Let me go to this and that. But then the next portion says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Amen. So, do our works have to be shown and be evidence of our salvation? Yes. But even for that, we depend on God to make us will that, to do it. For his good pleasure. It is not because we're afraid that God is going to smack us or judge us because we're not doing enough good works. No. It is because of his gracious love and mercy and patience with us that should turn our obedience to him rather than spitting on his face in rebellion. Romans 8.30 says... And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Amen. This is taken into account that those that are saved, they will persevere. And they have the assurance that we are saved. We're, we're in the hands of Jesus. The work is done. The last passage that I have here in reference to this topic, our Lord Jesus Himself, in John 10, 28, He said, speaking about the sheep, His sheep, He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. That no one, not even yourself, you cannot snatch yourself out of God's hand. What if I did this and the other and that? Well, are you convicted? Are you going to repent? Yes. Well then, we're good. Let's remember 
in the writings of Paul that he says, So what shall we do then? Shall we go around and party and do this and that and sin away that grace may prevail? Paul says, May it never be. This is not a license for us to go and sin our lives away. Because remember, that would mean that we're in open rebellion walking away from the truth. So, what does this study tell us here in the closing of the book of James? It means that I must take inventory of my own life and cry out to God, Lord, guard me. Give me the grace, the perseverance, the safe rails of my brothers and sisters so that I don't go astray. The Bible says, let him who thinks he's strong, take heed lest he falls. I can never say, oh, don't worry about me. I'm, I'm fine. I'm strong. I'm, I'm, I'm up here preaching. I know some things, a thing or two about the Bible. Don't worry about me. May we never think that we're not in a position where giving the wrong time and place, we will fall for sin in ways we will have grave consequences for our life and our loved ones. So let's take inventory of that. And remember that the way God answers this prayer to guard us and to keep us is that He places His people, the church, in strategic places in order to bring you back over and over and over again. Because He is a God who is tenacious in bringing us to Him. Otherwise, left to our own understanding and ability and judgment, we would never come to Him. So may we have that constant redirecting of our hearts to come to Him in repentance and to have others be used to bring us to Him as wandering sheep that we could be. So I will close with two questions. Number one, am I wandering from the faith? Am I in danger? And number two, is there someone I know who has wandered away from the faith or it really seems like they're in the process of doing so? And if that is the case, I want to ask you, who is God calling in order to bring them back? You know the answer? It's you. And the way that we can approach and be obedient to that call is by asking God to help you and to work in that person's heart so that you can be obedient. And there is no guarantee that such person will come back, but that is none of your business. You must be obedient to the call that Scripture gives us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for allowing us to, to complete the book of James, in which we have learned an extensive amount of practical wisdom and knowledge in order to know you better 
and in order to keep ourselves accountable of how a Christian walk should look like. Lord, this morning, may you really bring conviction to us in the areas that we're wandering away from you. Or even generally speaking, if we are letting our hearts wander away from the truth, being enticed by our own sinful desires, Lord. I pray that you would allow us, that you would grant us the ability to come back to the fold to you, Lord, where we belong. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that you may have placed in our minds and hearts that have wandered away or are in the process of doing so, that we would reach out to them, Lord, so that they would be forgiven, Lord, and so that they would not be lost, and that it would be to your glory. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.